Warning, this episode contains many spoilers. If you still have not seen Fight Club and have no idea what happens, then please do not listen to this episode, and rather, go watch the movie, right now preferably, because it's a good one, and then you can join us for this delightful snob. Robert Paulson. His name is 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 Meatloaf. <laughs> you got me there. Paradise by the Dashboard Lights. <laughs> His name is Jack Black's dad from Tenacious D. <laughs> Pick of Destiny. <laughs> His name is Lord of the Underworld, Meatloaf. <laughs> Well, Meatloaf, um, I, every time I think of this movie, which, listener, you, I really hope you know what movie it is already. Well, I guess you've seen the title. But anyway. Yeah, if you haven't read the title of this episode, it's just somehow randomly come on in some <laughs> algor- algorithmic disruption of the podcast app. <laughs> yeah, if that has happened, then the movie's Fight Club. Um, but every time I think of Meatloaf in this movie, I just think it is a brilliant move. I don't know why. It's just... Yeah. Uh, it's 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 beyond words. I just love that Meatloaf is in this movie. Classic Meatloaf role, top five of his career, without a doubt. Yeah. Possibly number one. Yeah. And in terms of acting credits, I can only think of two. <laughs> you know what? I, I was thinking that, but then I just thought of a third. What's that? The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Ah, okay. Yeah, Meatloaf makes an appearance in Rocky Horror. He just like rides into the crazy mansion on a motorcycle and sings a song like this exuberant rock and roll song. And then I'm pretty sure at the end, he's just like killed by Tim Curry. Oh, uh, by it? <laughs> or Pennywise? Yeah, by it. <laughs> what's, the, what's the clown's name again? Pennywise. Pennywise. Yeah, yeah. which sounds like the name of like, a, like a, a newspaper from the 1800s. Like your daily Pennywise. I don't know. It does. It does. So, listener, welcome to General Snobbery. If this is your first time joining us, we give you a special welcome to this table of snobbery where we dissect and deconstruct films through a philosophical and cultural perspective, or at least we fancy ourselves to think so. Yeah, (laughs) but maybe... Usually we just kind of laugh about them and see where that goes. Yeah, somehow that usually leads to some kind of uh, underwriting, like, critique of, um, like, society and paranoia. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we try to fashion ourselves into this conversational style where these zeitgeist can find space to speak through us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we realize that's so pretentious to say, but from another perspective, it's the least pretentious thing possible to say. Wow, man, you are ready to join Project Mayhem, Sean. You're, you're, <laughs> your ego yeah, has yeah, dissolved. I'm ready away. to ask no questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh. This is going to be a fun episode because this is a long time coming to snob about Fight Club, which has come up. Several dozen times over mm-hmm. the course of this uh, one plus year snobbing journey. Yeah, absolutely. A, a year, a year in the making, a year in the snobbing. Yeah, um, we've amazing. accumulated one listener over the course of that year. Yeah, an amazing feat. We we hope yeah. to maybe accumulate one more. If not, just keep it at a steady one. Uh-huh. That's fine. Yeah, we're totally fine with one, but two would be okay. Three would be nice. Three's a nice number. Yeah, because yeah. two out of three ain't bad. 
Meatloaf, <laughs> or is that Bob Seger? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Anyway, don't know. it's a song lyric. <laughs> <laughs> so, before we dive into Fight Club, however, we would like to um, give some homage to three individuals, all of whom have been kind enough to contact General Snobbery, whether by email generalsnobbery at gmail.com or through twitter at generalsnobbery and responded to our prerogative to send us some questions and so we'd like to give each of these questions a little bit of time so if you're dying to get to fight club you can just start hitting that 15 second fast forward button until you hear us talking about it but these are some pretty good questions so let's let's uh pause to consider Mm -hmm. the first one came via twitter through Dave, our listener from St. Kitts and Nevis. (laughs) An island nation that we all now want to go to. Yeah. And stay with you, Dave. (laughs) Yeah, of course. And so uh, Dave's question was simple, and I appreciated it because I think it can be interpreted many ways. And it was simply, thoughts on the Holy Grail? Question mark. It's a great question. Um, Yeah. I know when I think of the Holy Grail, I think of uh, Sean Connery's abdomen. And that's the first thing I think of. <laughs> that's a good thing to think of. Yeah. And so, you know, supposedly <laughs> the, the cup of Christ, and yet in my my vision of Christ has something to do with Sean Connery's abdomen and yeah. um, the hydrogen peroxide that is being poured off of his abdomen because it bubbles. Remember when, when in Indiana Jones in the... I almost said the Temple of the Last Crusade. I don't know. I can never get the Indian... It's the Temple of the Crystal Skull, man. (laughs) Oh, yeah, with the monkeys. Yeah. (laughs) And the movie that made Shia LaBeouf hate Steven Spielberg. Um, The Temple of the Raiders Crusade. (laughs) The young... The college years. Uh, College years. River Phoenix. (laughs) So... Yeah, that's those are my those are my thoughts on the Holy Grail. Sean Connery's abdomen and um, nice. when he winces, because remember that that asshole Donovan shoots him in the belly. Yeah, yeah, before uh, his face melts, right? Yeah, yeah, before Which Donovan's... I think you had a nightmare about last night. Yeah, I did. I did every night actually. <laughs> <laughs> that like determines about eighty percent of your behavior. Yeah, it that does. image. Yeah, cowering <laughs> that in Jungian fear. That nightmare. Yeah, seeing that Nazi swastika pin just like. As Donovan's dust just blows away over it. <laughs> horrifying. Yeah, yeah. Truly horrifying. What about you, uh, Sean? What are your thoughts on the Holy Grail? You know, instantly I think of Monty Python. Ah, mm-hmm. Yeah. Instantly I think of the line, run away. And uh, I think of the holy hand grenade of Antioch. Mm, mm-hmm. And I think of the horrid beast that protects the cave, which is this flying bunny rabbit, basically, yeah. that like eats people's heads off. Yeah. In the most yeah. amazing way. Yeah, I think of a good Terry Gilliam animation mm, that mm-hmm. has a bunch of people like farting through heavenly trumpets. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, great, great evocations of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is easily one of my favorite comedies of all time. Mm. Absolutely hilarious in every way. In fact, I wouldn't, wouldn't mind doing a little schnob on that. Yeah, who wouldn't mind a little, <laughs> a little Yoast style schnob on that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Yoast loves Monty Python. <laughs> Who has a fart in heaven space? <laughs> yeah. It's got something coming up. <laughs> something got holy. <laughs> something got holy. Another thing I think of with the Holy Grail is uh, eternal life. You know? Oh, yeah. And, yeah, the whole, like, you know, Arthurian legend, which, of course, has been 
taken in all these great cinematic ways, but if we go back to the core, about which I know absolutely nothing, uh, I think it has something to do with experiencing eternal life. It's like a different form of the archetype of the Philosopher's Stone, mm. which, if you're American, you might know as the Sorcerer's Stone, since uh, J.K. Rowling's publishers knew that a book called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone would gather no interest, but the Sorcerer's Stone would. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some people don't like philosophy, which is, yeah. I think, why General Snobbery has one listener. Exactly, yeah. We should <laughs> we should call, we should call change the name of our podcast to General Sorcery, and I bet yeah. we'd get a lot of listeners. <laughs> <laughs> General Sorcery, definitely not philosophy. <laughs> All of a sudden, the well, listeners just flock. I know. I bet, actually, now we have several NSA listeners who, like, caught on to that uh, little algorithm and they're like we need to listen in they're talking about sorcery <laughs> we are the true sorcerers of our era <laughs> our crystal ball of algorithms <laughs> nsa layer wow that's hilarious i never knew yeah. that little factoid but i knew yeah. there was something about the philosopher's stone and the sorcerer's stone and the naming but i, I never knew that actual detail yeah, like in England, if you were to see it on a bookshelf, it's called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good old Nicholas Flamel, if you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, NF, uh, I'm uh, guessing. Yeah. <laughs> or is he a PH, Flamel? Oh, he's an F. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, he's no he's no River Phoenix. Uh, of course, or Joaquin. Or Joaquin. Joaquin yeah. Phoenix's initials are JP. JP, just like the, uh, the little black kid from Angels in the Outfield. Ah. That's friends with, uh, that's friends with JGL. Oh, yeah, of course. Neo? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listener, if you've just joined us for the first time, you probably have no idea what we're talking about right now. So, sorry about that. We kind of <laughs> tend to go on these, <laughs> these digressions of meta references to the history of the snobbing journey. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we apologize. <laughs> just just st stick with us for a little bit and you too can be a sorcerer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can enter into the realm of general sorcery. Mm -hmm. Snorcery. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> As Dave certainly has. So thank you for that great question, Dave. Yeah, Dave, we wish you a uh, good beach time or whatever you do there. Yeah, or actually, exactly. Or actually, I don't think you are there. You were just visiting. So anyway, you're there. You're there. And yeah. you're here. We assume you're eternally in St. Kitts and Nevis, yeah. our favorite country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our next question comes from Angela. And Angela is a dear friend and is married to Aidan Gillespie, who, if you um, are a devoted listener to General Snobbery, would know was our special guest on last episode regarding The Matrix, when he shared his vast philosophical wisdom regarding you mean, that film. You mean his sorcery? <laughs> <laughs> sorry. My bad. I'm sorry. Don't leave, listener. Yes. We're not talking about philosophy. It was just sorcery. <laughs> please, please, yeah, yeah. don't turn it off. <laughs> Stay here. Yeah, but you're right. He shared his vast knowledge on The Matrix and his dislike of uh, Cypher. Um, his dislike of Cypher. Yeah. yeah. Pantagliana. Angela. Pantagliana. Yeah. <laughs> So, Angela, first of all, thanks for tuning in uh, to our Armageddon episode and any other episodes you've listened to. Listened to. Um, and thank you for this great question, which is, what is your opinion of the rom-com genre and what is your favorite romantic comedy? Oh, my gosh. Mm. I bet our one listener just has 10,000 thoughts going through his or her brain right now. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, Many of which involve Matthew McConaughey. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, Maybe that's just me. There are there are many McConaughey's that could that you, one could mention here. Um, mm-hmm. I, Interstellar. Yeah, Interstellar. A Time to Kill. Uh, all these yeah, rom coms he was in. <laughs> <laughs> Dallas Buyers Club. <laughs> Sorry if that was offensive to anyone. That's that's a, a super serial movie yeah. in the words of Al Gore. Yeah, it is. It is super serial. That's a good point. Um, yeah. that's also has Leto. Yeah. Speaking of fight club. Yeah. Oh yeah. Speaking of yeah, yeah. Leto. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to Leto. I know. I feel like I, I feel like I need to talk about Leto. I need to process Leto. Um, I also There's like a good chance. This will be our longest episode ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we might just have to Leto. that be the case. <laughs> that was, that was so horrible. I'm sorry for that, that sorcery. Good. That was that was good. Not quite a Frasier pun, but no. a good pun, a Leto pun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, uh, I'm drawing a blank on rom coms to be honest right now. Um, I, I I can start yeah, it off. Maybe you spark your imagination. You know, we Thank were talking you. about JGL. Mm-hmm. What instantly comes to my mind is 500 D, <gasps> 500 D's of summer. Yeah, 500 D's is very. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, just a. Great, great movie across the board. JGL's fantastic in that movie. I know, uh, Aiden, if you're listening, I know you're not, not the biggest JGL fan, but I apologize if you haven't, uh, brought that up in your marriage yet. And I apologize if this brings any conflict to the table. Yeah. But, uh, JGL, you know, hit or miss, you know, he wasn't, wasn't the best as Neo in Inception, but he was good in, in, 500 Days of Summer, and so was Zoe Deschanel. Yeah. I thought she was really fantastic. Um, I, I liked this film because uh, it was it was a little twist on the genre in that, yeah, it followed some of the predictable tropes, you know, the ups and downs, but then again, it ended in a, a different way than most movies. And I won't give it away in case anyone hasn't seen it because I really think it's worth watching, but it actually had something to say about the nature of relationships and the nature of conflicts and not just, you know, this bubbly message of like, yay, it all works out in the end. You don't have to be depressed. (laughs) (laughs) See, my favorite ones are the ones that actually have that voiceover at the end. (laughs) (laughs) The notebook had that, right? (laughs) Yeah, it did. It did. It was uh, James James Garner, the actor, said it. (laughs) (laughs) James Garner, also known as Ryan Gosling in 50 years. (laughs) Exactly. Also known as I... I hug my wife to death. <laughs> Isn't that how that movie ended? Pulled Didn't they just hug off. each other to death? Yeah, just like a Commodus and Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I really hope Nicholas Sparks' book, The Notebook, I really hope there's a line that says, like, toward the end, like, they hugged each other to death. Um, <laughs> just like that douchebag Commodus. Yeah. <laughs> Held her to his breast until she died. <laughs> Commodus, I'm so weak. Don't hug me. <laughs> Commodus is not a moral man. <laughs> I want to scream laugh right now. Harry Potter. Speaking of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's yeah. Stone. You're right. He was oh my key philosopher, friend of NF, Nick Flamel. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and that was pre that was pre Gambin. PG. <laughs> pre Gambin. PG. And yeah. it was PG HP, you know, before wow. PG thirteen entered the fold with old Columbus. Uh, I, was it Columbus I think who it was, did it? It was Columbus in the first two, and then ah. I think uh, then Alfonso Suarón swooped in, and I think ah. up to the ante a little bit with the oh, yeah. Prisoner of Azkaban. Mm, yeah, of course. Yeah. My favorite old, Harry Potters were the ones directed by David Lynch. <laughs> yeah, that was, those were good. Yeah, yeah. he directed yeah. eight of them, right? 
<laughs> yeah, he did. Lynch directed eight <laughs> Harry Potter movies. <laughs> uh, speaking real quick, uh, speaking of Lynch and wow, actually, um, a uh, little Eraserhead, uh, moment of Eraserhead <laughs> real quick. Um, Daily Eraserhead reference here? Exactly, yeah. I uh, Yesterday, I had a fleeting moment. I'd say it lasted two seconds where I understood something about Eraserhead. And then wow. I instantly did not understand it anymore. You know, like that's what that movie does. It's like... So you couldn't <gasps> explain it now? Oh, not at all. No, I couldn't. I know it had to do <laughs> with the baby. But that's oh, really? It. Yeah, it did have to do with the baby. That's it a was, profound moment to have. Yeah. To feel like you have any insight into what the hell yes. that thing is. <laughs> exactly. Like I, <laughs> I stopped walking. Like I was walking, and then I had to stop and think about it, and then I forgot it, and I kept walking. It was really interesting. Man. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've. I don't think I've ever felt like I've understood any of that movie. Yeah, I know. Same here, except for that moment that I now don't remember. <laughs> Eraserhead, not a rom com. <laughs> no, no, I don't know if Lynch has done a rom com. Uh, uh-huh. There's a romance in Mulholland Drive between the two female leads, but there's not much comedy unless you find like a creepy ass cowboy on top of a hill giving cryptic message messages to justin thoreau funny which (laughs) i kind of do actually yeah (laughs) a creepy ass cowboy with no eyebrows Uh uh-huh you know it'll be interesting as we go through the rest of this episode if in any way we can draw some rom-com uh like thematic points from fight club Mm. Uh, because there is a romance and having watched it this time around i found it to be funnier than i have previously Definitely something we're going to delve into because I had yeah. the exact same reaction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, have any ro- romantic comedies come to your mind in this convo? Um, well, Matt? when you mentioned 500 Days of Summer, definitely that. And then thinking about that reminded me of uh, La La Land, um, mm. a movie that we previously great, great mentioned mm-hmm, yeah. uh, episode on. And we mentioned ha- had some similar feelings to... 500 days of summer true you know yeah. when i think of a bad rom-com i think of those rom-coms that come out around the holidays not necessarily the same holidays every year yeah but i'm sure there'll be one coming out this year around thanksgiving like valentine's day like valentine's day where it's like this huge ensemble cast uh-huh. and it's like one one of the kids can't get home because of weather and then they meet someone in the airport and take them home and mm-hmm. there's like this family that has like four kids who are running around and Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's just trying to pull, like, a thousand different emotional strings, uh-huh. like, over the course of two hours. Yes. And <laughs> they're, they're, like, movies like that are, I feel like, in terms of, like, the way humans operate and the way relationships work, they're, like, less realistic than, a, than like, a movie like Harry Potter. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> they say less about humanity than, than movies that have things that don't exist in them. Yeah, such as the Philosopher's Stone. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we meet Sorcerer. <laughs> I was literally trying to say it the right way, and then I realized I, I fucked it up. <laughs> you sounded like a Doug Funny character right uh, there. I was going for uh, the dude, but he's like oh, yeah. mad at Walter. You <laughs> fucked it up! <laughs> Nothing is uh, fucked, dude. Nothing is fucked. <laughs> Uh, another romantic comedy that I really, really love <clears throat> is uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Ah, uh-huh. Forgetting Sarah Marshall, uh, Jason Siegel. You, is it because you like his penis? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I like the fact that it shows his penis for a total of like two minutes of the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> bold move, bold move. Yeah, that dude yeah. was like 
I think he was like 25 when he made that movie, and he wrote it. Oh, did he really? Yeah, talented fellow, that Jay. Oh, yeah, JC. Then again, I also mean, not very attractive, and Mila Kunis is unbelievably attractive, so. Yeah. Kind of a, a little stretch there. Yeah. <laughs> he, he did the old Adam Sandler effect. Yeah. Uh, as someone pointed out, in Adam Sandler's movies, he always has a gorgeous wife or girlfriend or something. Yeah. And every yeah. single time, he just looks exactly like Adam Sandler. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Forgetting Sarah Marshall kind of messes with some of the, the tropes, too. Like, for instance, one of my favorite parts about that movie is... Um, Aldous Snow, I think his name is, the guy that Sarah Marshall leaves Peter uh, for, yeah. played uh-huh. by, uh, oh shit, what's that guy's name? Carrie, Katy uh, Perry's ex-husband. Yeah, yeah I can't believe I can't remember Van his name. Brandt. Yeah, so, uh, Russell Brandt. Okay, his Brandt is my witness. Yeah. <laughs> Second Lebowski reference. Yeah. <laughs> and like, he's, you know, obviously in typical romantic comedy style when like the new good looking studly guy comes in you know we as the audience hate him through the lens of yeah. the protagonist who also hates him and that's how this guy's introduced you know he's just this like super sexual rock star who's like got this <laughs> <laughs> this charisma and um attractive quality that peter definitely doesn't have mm-hmm. and so you know for a standard com- romantic comedy he's going to be the villain and be destroyed in the end you know like wedding crashers with with sack yeah um, sack. <laughs> but at the end at the end of this movie peter and him are like really good friends <laughs> that's both right don't want to be with sarah marshall because she's just like oh yeah uh, she's got some issues she's got yeah. some issues of kind of needing a level of attention that uh that I think she needs to get past. And, oh, you know, yeah. she's kind of judgmental. So, like, the last time these guys are together, they, like, hug. And they're really, really happy to see each other. The, oh, yeah. I find really, really delightful. It is. It's nice, you know, when romantic comedies step out of the out of the form that has been established for a long time for what they yeah. should be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, maybe any, any final thoughts on rom-coms in general for Angela? Um... Not, you know, I, not really just simply I, I like when they do something different, when they break the mold a little bit and they actually try and like they try and have real emotions in there. And yeah. when they're when they're not predictable, I think they're really awesome. Agreed. Agreed. Um, yeah, I can be just such a huge sucker for that genre. Mm-hmm. In fact, even the bad ones, like I kind of enjoy. Oh, uh, yeah, me too. Yeah, I can kind of like laugh at them and stuff. And sometimes they still, you know tug at my heartstrings yeah exactly you're a bird i'm a bird that's right (laughs) (laughs) which is funny because a gosling is a bird a gosling is a baby goose really yeah wow so he is a bird and i'm a bird he's got a goose-like quality to him he does it must be his yellow feathers (laughs) yeah that's probably it yeah (laughs) (laughs) so uh angela we'd love to hear your thoughts on rom-coms so you could uh, email us again or tweet at us and other listener if you happen to exist we would also love your thoughts and your favorite rom-coms that we Mm. have not mentioned so please send those our way and we will uh, get back to you via the the sm social media yeah and yeah we we will love actually get back to you so yes um (laughs) yeah (laughs) we will we will and so one one more question to consider and then time for the uh the full dive into the nightmarish world of fight club Mm -hmm. this one comes from 
our dear friend Josh Beckman. And this is an interesting question, and it's resonated with me for a while. He asked it, you know, a couple weeks ago, and I had to do a little research on it. So Josh asked us, is the Cannes Film Festival, is their banning of Netflix from its competition too snobby, or was its inclusion in the first place not snobby enough? Oh, my God. Yeah. This is a this is a big time. Yeah. So just a little background, because I had to kind of Google mm-hmm. around this. Um, Cannes Film Festival, which is a festival in France, you know, one of the biggest ones right up there, you know, Sundance. I guess they've officially updated their terms to where films that are released directly to a streaming service, like pretty directly, like talking about Netflix here, mm-hmm. um, they can be like shown at the festival, I think, but they aren't eligible for like the competitions. Interesting. <laughs> so um, I think some folks at Netflix were pretty mad. Yeah, I can I can totally understand why they would be mad because, I mean, I, I understand that maybe um, from the board of directors of the film festival or wh- whoever it is who sort of deliberated on this topic, I they could be thinking along the lines of, because the internet is so like accessible, um, the quality of artistic things on the internet is therefore less, something like that. Um, because now anyone with an iPhone can take a picture, but that doesn't make them a photographer. So stuff can be put online very easily, but that doesn't make it like an artistic film or movie or something like that. So like I get that perspective. However, at the same time, um, like, 20th Century Fox and all these other companies are constantly putting out movies that are so diluted in terms of any sense of uh, real display of human character or emotion that like, <laughs> I, it, it seems a little unfair that those are, those could be welcomed and something as good as like some of these shows, for example, on Netflix are like, are not. So it, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I personally feel after reflecting on it a bit that it's, it's the perfect amount of snobbery. Ah, amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I love it. Um, it makes me laugh. <laughs> awesome. I, 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 would love, I would love to know more. Yeah, I don't think there is too much more. Um, I just, to me, it feels very French. It does. And I appreciate that. I think French have a, a rich history of snobbery, mm-hmm. and they've really in many ways paved the way for snobbery yeah um a lot of the i think the new york snobbing scene is kind of an offshoot of french culture and and really in many ways as we've discussed on previous episodes kind of a a bastardization of the heightened level of french snobbery yeah you're right you know it, it leads to these these weird kind of you know i put it in quotes snobs these very unlikable people, you know, like, mm-hmm. I will only eat hors d'oeuvres free of gluten or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally fine if you're gluten free, but just yeah. don't say it like that. Yeah, exactly. It's all in the voice. Yeah. Whereas, you know, the French have shown us that it is it is very important and necessary not only to have taste, but to express that taste and not to, you know, be like, Oh well, you know, you you have your opinion. That's fine if you like Transformers. Like, no mm-hmm. problem. Yeah. It's like, no, Transformers is absolute shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're right. They're they're a little more matter of fact. I feel like there is a certain like American passive aggression that sometimes makes us like 
always like take a like put our hands off like yeah um, oh we don't want to like um don't want to offend you guys yeah exactly like i I can't stand solid by my (laughs) views on this so it is nice i mean the french also like they're one of the only languages or maybe the only language that hasn't like an academy that decides what words are permitted in their vocabulary you really? ever heard of this? Yeah. No. I think it's called like the Academy Francaise or something like that. And every year <laughs> they meet and they're like, no, we, we do not permit that word in our language. It's not French. That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's like they, they have this, this, like they, they do have like a line that they, that they draw in the sand, dude. Um, nice. Yeah. Third. Yeah. Third. Excellent. That's, that's amazing. I love that. Yeah. So I think that's the first time we've really gotten into France on this podcast. So thanks, Josh, for that question. And uh, if you happen to be French and you're listening to this, um, we love you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your guidance. (laughs) And if you happen to be a bro listening to this, uh, our admiration for the French probably made you hate us. Yeah. But that's because you're a sorcerer. That's because you're, you're an evil sorcerer, an evil demon. Yeah. <laughs> and if you happen to be Roland Emmerich listening to this, hello. Yeah, hello. Yeah. We, uh, we haven't really kept up with you lately, so we apologize for that. We'll definitely send you a, a tweet of our good wishes mm-hmm. soon. I don't want you to think that we've you know taken taken the back seat in this friendship. We definitely you know see it as a lifelong uh, friendship. Yeah. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we, uh, we know that you sometimes like to poke fun at the French, like in Godzilla, uh, but he yeah. also <laughs> independence to error, uh, maybe, uh, also, uh, a patriot, <laughs> <laughs> but in Godzilla, you also made fun of Roger Ebert, which was really funny. Yeah. Well, maybe, uh, maybe Roger Ebert can be our bridge into fight club. Ah, yes. So I say that about Roger Ebert because, um, as Matt and I have established on this podcast, we absolutely adore Mr. Ebert. He's each of our favorite film critic, I mm-hmm. do believe. Yeah, and film sorcerer. We, yeah, great, great sorcerer. Mm-hmm. And a true snob. Yeah. A very, very true snob. Yes. And typically we agree with him. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure about you on this, but Fight Club is one of the few instances where I strongly disagree with Mr. Uh-huh. Ebert because he gave the film two stars out of four. Wow. Which is a very low rating for old Raj, considering yeah. he gave Garfield three stars out of four. <laughs> yeah. He gave Mortal Kombat, I think, three as, as well. I think he did. <laughs> give Garfield. <laughs> I've never seen Garfield, but... Can't imagine it's better than Fight Club. (laughs) Yeah. But Roger Ebert had this interesting way of critiquing that I very much respect. I don't always agree with, but he, he wasn't always, in my, my opinion of him, he wasn't always consistent in how he reviewed a movie. Sometimes he would review it in terms of how well it was made, but sometimes he would review it in terms of how, how like beneficial to society he felt the message of the movie was. Yeah. And he very much hated nihilism. Um, mm. and aspects of this movie, uh, maybe even meaning all of this movie are incredibly nihilistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was kind of his major qualm in the end was that he saw it as 
like not just depicting violence but glorifying it mm, mm-hmm. to a particular yeah, degree yeah. and um I get that. yeah espousing basically no redeemable morality <laughs> <laughs> yes he he thought team america and south park pick and longer hit on cut did not like posit a, a counter morality or counter kind of ethic to what they ripped down um uh-huh. and this one even i think more so uh doesn't really do that yeah because well i almost said it doesn't do it through comedy but we were kind of hinting earlier mm-hmm. that perhaps it does yeah perhaps it does because there were, I I, I want to remember now the parts that made me laugh the most. So maybe, Sean, uh, I'll, I'll. I think they'll come up. I think they will. I think they will. Uh, certainly, so the, certainly low. This this thought kind of came to my mind. Like, there's always been parts that you know I laugh at and mm-hmm. stuff. But overall, like my dominant impression of the movie is like super serious, very like heavy. I need to like really think about life. Um, and I have the DVD of this film. Mm-hmm. Remember DVDs? <laughs> and there's a, there's, it's, it's really cool. There's like four different audio commentaries. One of them's like just David Fincher. One of them's Fincher with Norton, Pitt, and Bonham Carter. Uh-huh. One of them's the author Chuck Palahniuk and the screenwriter Jim Ewells. And the f- other one is like four, uh, cinematographer guys or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was listening to the one with, you know, Norton and Pitt and Carter and, they kept referring to it as a dark comedy. Really? Yeah. Yeah. They're referring it to it as a, a dark comedy. Um, just kind of offhandedly. Yeah. You know? And so I was like, huh. I mean, I guess I've never really thought about that. Like, yeah, it's made me laugh, but I've never actually thought of the film as a dark comedy in itself. So then I watched it all from the beginning without any commentary. And I was laughing way more than I've ever laughed during this movie. Like, yeah. <laughs> most scenes... <laughs> <laughs> which like some <laughs> listeners who maybe have only seen this movie once or twice are probably like man that dude is messed up <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you're right you're right absolutely because it's taken me years it, it probably took me years to to laugh at anything in this movie and it's taken me yeah. even more years to realize to laugh this much um yeah and- i've probably seen this movie like in the 10 to 15 okay. time range yeah like, a lot mm-hmm yeah, and this is the first time where I think I really like laughed a lot. <laughs> yeah, like years ago for me, there's a particular scene that would make me laugh, and that was the scene when this uh, at, at Edward Norton's job, this guy is giving this like presentation on like efficiency or something like that or redundancy, and mm, he yeah. turns to Edward Norton and he says something like, <laughs> "I showed this to my man earlier. You liked it, didn't you?" <laughs> like, and then Edward Norton just shows him his bloody gums. <laughs> <laughs> And everyone is horrified. The guy horrified. just looks like horrified. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I love it. The guy's like lean back in this like cool guy posture. Yes. Like, I showed this to my man earlier. <laughs> that guy's an amazing actor. Everyone, I, I, I totally know that character. Um, yeah. That's another thing I got this viewing was like how amazing all the side characters are, like the small roles. Even the characters who would have like one tiny scene yeah. were often so memorable. Yeah. Like, I never realized how good of an actor is the guy who plays Raymond Hessel. The oh, guy, yeah, yeah. the convenience store worker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Stop! <laughs> like, I felt that part conflicted me this time because, I like, I, I was feeling so bad for that guy because yeah, yeah. he's just freaking out the whole time. But then, like, when Tyler Durden lets him run away, Brad Pitt just looks at him and goes, Run, Forrest, run! <laughs> 
<laughs> just screams a line from Forrest Gump at him. <laughs> <laughs> a movie that came it's out only so a few funny. years earlier. <laughs> yeah, like five years before. <laughs> wow. That's another thing I picked up is how many like references to culture and other films this film has. Yeah, it really does. A lot of product placement, um, but with this like subcontext that that's all bad. You know what I mean? Which I think is yeah. most of me kind of conflicting for like Mountain Dew and Pepsi and all these other Starbucks. Like, yeah, like Krispy Kreme, like IKEA, like they're, they're, yeah. they're ripping down the entire notion of consumerism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not like Jurassic World where they're like poking fun of the fact that they're using product placement while like literally making no comment on it. It's yeah. like the whole movie is yeah. a comment on like the dangers of consumer culture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all surrounded in it because yeah. that's like the, the zeitgeist. Uh-huh. That's the, the ethos. That's the landscape uh-huh. of this era. Yeah. <laughs> You know, something that really cracks me up about this movie in terms of Project Mayhem um, <laughs> is how, so, you know, listener, I mean, you, you have to know this. And none of this is what, what we're saying makes any sense if you don't know this movie, if you haven't seen it. Um, and, you know, Sean and I are very actually careful whenever we talk about this movie on here that we don't give away like the big plot twist. Like there have been a couple of times where we've just like referenced Fight Club and then that's it because we don't want to get yeah. into it anymore. First rule. <laughs> First rule. Um, yeah. But this episode, we're definitely going to be talking about the plot twist. So if you do not know that and you're still with us at this point, you probably should just watch the movie because the plot twist is... It's pretty pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Um, and apparently, Rosie O'Donnell gave it away on national television after this movie came out. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I, that's what they were talking about on the commentary. They were talking about Rosie O'Donnell. Wow. Because, like, I guess she hated the movie so bad and it disturbed her so much. Ah. And she, like, was talking about it and said the ending, which wow. they said, Brad Pitt said, was unforgivable. Wow, that's amazing. He, he yeah. treats spoilers as... um. As sacredly as we do, it seems. Mm-hmm. However, it, and also, anyway, um, but Project Mayhem, so this terror cell that Tyler Durden is establishing, something that cracks me up about these, these burgeoning, like, middle-aged... Space monkeys? <laughs> space monkeys, is some of their acts of terror are very, very harmless seeming like when they put a billboard up that just says did you know that motor oil is good for your lawn (laughs) do you remember that yeah yeah i do i i didn't ever remember that until watching it this time and i thought about that i was like why would wait well what is that like that seems so harmless like basically what that's going to do is it's just going to kill people's lawn (laughs) Like, like why would they do that and it's like it seems to me to like eat at the very fabric fabric of like society in some ways. Like we, the idea of like a beautiful lawn is seen as like an aspect of the American dream, mm-hmm. and they're here trying to trick people into killing their lawns by pouring oil on it. Yeah. <laughs> and I just found that to be so hilarious. And then like meatloaf like running away from the billboard, you know, <laughs> it's just like really hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, I guess, to quickly establish this, because it's one of the things I've been thinking of, and we've made mention to it multiple times in this podcast, but the year 1999 in cinema is, I think, quickly becoming, like, maybe my favorite year. I'm very interested Mm. in themes that burgeoned through multiple big movies in 1999, Mm -hmm. uh, which is when Fight Club came out, and those are the themes of kind of 
heavily critiquing the American dream and showing its inevitable emptiness. And Mm -hmm. in some cases, even like the violence that can result, you know, in, in following, whether that's like actual physical violence in the sense of fight club or like mental violence in um, the case of Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick's mm-hmm. last film, 1999, mm-hmm. where, you know, we have this marriage between hotshot Tom Cruise, who's got all this money, and beautiful Nicole Kidman. And it sh- should be perfect, but it's, like, not at all. Mm-hmm. And the whole yeah. movie is, like, they don't know each other in the slightest. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's American Beauty, which yeah. explores these themes, that Sam Mendes film. And... um What's the other one I'm thinking of? Uh, oh, The Matrix. I mean, there's The Matrix, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah The Matrix. And then even, like, in a, a different way, Office Space. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Amazing movie. Uh, totally just this human-as-machine sort of look at, uh, like, uh, how how we live in a, an office world. Yeah, yeah, just cogs in this, wow. like, meaningless system that leads to just this as- absolute, like, impotence on life. <laughs> like yeah. atrophy of the will. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which is a theme that very much is explored in a fight club as well. Sort of the the line from Tyler Durden where he says, you know, we, we, we work jobs that we hate so we can buy things we don't need. Yeah. Wow. You're right. There are, I know a lot of people who hate their job. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Here, like almost 20 seem, years later. I know. Exactly. Um, just a little aside real quick about office space. I recently ran across a line from the movie uh, that I saw on the internet from, um, Milton that was so funny. And if you remember, there's a kind of a famous cake scene with Milton where he's the only person who doesn't get a slice of cake. And he says this line that is just so hilarious. He says, the ratio of people to cake is too high. <laughs> And something about that incredibly like statistical way of yeah. saying that there's not enough cake just <laughs> just shows how much that like that type of thinking that's been indoctrinated into his job yeah. is like filtering into his worldview of every given situation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Oh man. And another thing I was thinking about is that you know, ninety nine as we've established is a year when people were still happy because yeah. it was before nine eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, when everything changed, but you know, terrorism hadn't quite entered the vernacular at that point. Like yeah. there's obviously a word people knew and stuff, but it wasn't as widespread or like this, you know, assembly point of fear and paranoia. Um, but three, three of these movies that we've mentioned basically have terrorists as the protagonists, like, Fight Club, they, uh-huh. you know, the, yeah, the main yeah. guys are very much terrorists by the end. <laughs> yes. um, the Matrix, we established, like, they are in the world, like, as terrorists. Like, that's how they're yeah. described. You know, they're blowing up buildings and stuff. Yeah. Um, and this one might be a little stretch, but Office Space, Milton blows up the place at the end. Right. He does. Yeah, set, right. them free. And he's, like, seen as the hero who saves the day. <laughs> It's something about the music, I think, in Office Space. It's this really, like, joyful music as this building's burning down that never made me realize that, you're right, that was an act of terror. (laughs) Exploded this building. (laughs) 
<laughs> that could have had people in it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh my how, how odd is is that? That like you know, yeah, less like t- two years or less before this event, it was like terrorists as protagonists in these yeah. these stories that are critiquing the exact same thing that the actual terrorists of 9-11 were critiquing, which is like excessive mm. dependence on consumer culture and, you know, this kind of blind following of meaningless lives that, you know, inflicts itself at a global scale. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you're so right. Oh my gosh, that's really intense. Yeah, like at the end of Fight Club, when I watched it this time, I think this is, you know, in large part due to the fact that you and I have talked about, you know, 9-11 and how it changed films quite a bit. But like when the movie ended, right when the the credits rolled with, you know, where is my mind by the pixies going? Mm -hmm. My first thought was this film predicted 9-11. Because the final image of the movie, if you look really closely, like... Oh my God, you're right. Marla and... You know, the narrator, uh, played by Edward Norton, are standing hand in hand in this building. And they're watching out the window as all these buildings are collapsing. And uh-huh. the last two standing are two identical towers. And one oh. of them falls, and then the other falls. And then the movie ends. It's wow. so fucking eerie. And, like, you know, instantly, I was like, okay, this is insane. Like, this has 9-11 all over it. And so I, I Googled to see if people, you know, like, mm-hmm. had some connections made and essays and stuff and just instantly found, like, hundreds of conspiracy theories. Saying, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. That I, I'd never gone into, like, the the web of 9-11 conspiracy theories because I find yeah, it I mean, pretty disrespectful to, like, yeah. you know, people who have lost lives. And I don't take me as one of those conspiracy theorists listener, mm-hmm. but I did kind of follow the rabbit hole just out of like interest. Yeah. And there's this concept amidst these conspiracy theorists called predictive programming. And what it, I'm, I cannot wait. <laughs> I'm very excited. What it means is they believe that the, you know, powerful elite who are, you know, behind, you know, as they say, acts like nine 11 or whatever, Sort of this like Kristoff class. Kristoff class, yeah. Mm-hmm. They give subtle hints to what is about to come to the population so that the population is able to receive it better when it happens. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, so interesting. Yeah, they they just they're all over Fight Club because Tyler Durden often says the words ground zero. And That's um, right. Yeah, there there are other moments going on too, but I mean there's these these people find shit in every film like yeah it's it's yeah it's insane <laughs> that can, that conspiracy mindset is so interesting to see like at work because because of how 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 that mindset can seem to twist something that's so obviously like untwistable you know what i mean um but still that's that's so funny it's like it's it's almost like Plato's allegory of the cave, but in a totally like backwards way, because that idea of like leaving the cave, you can't your eyes won't adjust to the light of truth right away. You know, um, like Neo, why do my eyes hurt? Well, you've never yeah, used them. Never used so them. You like it's almost like if 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 this elite didn't give us Fight Club and other hints, like we would have almost been like, I, I don't know how to. 
my brain can't comprehend this, but at least I've seen Fight Club. And, right. Yeah. Like, They've got us saw yeah. Fight Club, which no one saw when it was in the theaters. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it like tanked at the box office, and it's become, you know, an yeah. absolute phenomenon and mm-hmm. often considered one of the best films of the decade now. Yeah. But like, Thanks, Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> just in case you're interested, listener, not because you should like think of these theories, but just because they're kind of like interesting to look at because it is a subsect of you know alex jones reality mm-hmm. um I'll, I'll we'll post a uh, a video like the video i found on generalsnobbery.com backslash uh fight fight yeah we'll go with that <laughs> fight fight and, uh, oh, i no, just no, i don't want to dwell on this too long but i do want to read like just as a last insight like a couple comments that were left on this youtube video mm-hmm. actually just one because i think you might like oh my it gives gosh. more insight into this mentality. So this guy, hopefully I'm not breaking the law by saying his name, is a uh, Joel Laguna. And hmm. so this is a comment on a video that like, you know, is connecting fight clubs, final images to 9-11 and all that. And he says, I saw this and I was all caps, wow. First thing I checked out was the release date, September twenty first, nineteen ninety nine. If I wanted to send an instruction as a date, this is how I would do it. Also funny was the reason to do it, to wipe out a debt and start from zero. I wonder whose debt was in those towers. And that, I, I don't know what the fuck that guy's talking about. Yeah, but like, yeah. He seems to be <laughs> suggesting that this is some like very obvious coded messages. And then uh, it, yeah. there's, one, there's a comment on that comment yes. by a, a guy named Rocket Surgeon. And the comment is simply... <laughs> You guys are lunatics, really. <laughs> That's hilarious. Thank you, Rocket Surgeon. <laughs> Thank you, Rocket Surgeon, for that good belly laugh you gave me when I read yeah. that. <laughs> I think uh, Joel Laguna, I wonder if he's suggesting that there are like, companies or whatever financial information was in the Twin Towers by knocking them down would like benefit american companies corporations yeah. is that yeah, that's that, what he's that saying was, that was like a continual theory regarding fight clubs coding mes- coded messages is that yeah these companies are trying to to benefit and needed to mm. do this in order in order to do so i mean interesting the webs of conspiracy theories regarding 9-11 just will go on infinitely yeah forever like it's I, yeah it's, it's insane it is it like, is we can accept that we probably don't know everything, but mm-hmm. like, it's not the yeah. Illuminati. I know, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're right, but conspiracy theorists like claim to know everything, which is... Right. You know, like, <laughs> I yeah. know this because I thought it. <laughs> <laughs> that's essentially the... That is, you know, that's essentially the wisdom, like, distilled right. <laughs> to its simplest form. <laughs> like, I thought of it, and it's possible, therefore it's true. Yeah, right. <laughs> it doesn't. That's actually not how not how things work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, oh, this movie definitely seemed to like anticipate the mentality that was like soon to come in the wake of the new millennium. Yeah, it's so fascinating. This like philosophy that Tyler Durden espouses and that Project Mayhem really picks up on. Um, to me, it reminded me of the Spartans from ancient Greece, you know, ah. the scene is like the warlike city state, um, where it's like deeply spiritual 
but not in the way Gandhi was deeply spiritual, you know? Yeah, which they maybe even made reference to by the <laughs> yeah. fact that like, the narrator says he would fight Gandhi. Exactly. <laughs> it's like enlightenment. At one point, Tyler Durden even says something like, you're reaching enlightenment or something like that. It's like... This is premature enlightenment. Yeah. But this enlightenment they speak of is like an ego death that revels in... Self-destruction. Self-destruction. Like, it's totally... It's totally that death wish, that like Freudian death wish, which I don't know much about, but that just like totally rang in my ears as I was watching this movie. And every oh, time yeah. I watch this movie, even now the narrator, you know, he's like, every time I'm in I, the plane banks too hard, you know, I, ho- I hope for a midair collision. Yeah. You know, and, like everyone's screaming as people are flying out of this plane. And he's just like sitting there peacefully. Right. <laughs> Cause yeah, Tyler uh, says that. He's experiencing premature enlightenment as he's burning his hand with lye. Yeah. yeah he's experiencing this unbelievable amount of pain. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, like hitting bottom is enlightenment for this. I mean, I guess you'd call it an ethos. Like, it is an ethos. Yeah. That's another thing I found interesting is that, like, like you mentioned earlier, you know, it's nihilism, like mm-hmm. all the morals that we've inherited from our society, from our parents, we've realized now that they're empty, void of meaning, and we're really angry. And yeah. so our response is to not just like reject them, but to go to the absolute opposite extreme of everything they've ever told us to do. <laughs> and to just destroy it. <laughs> to absolutely annihilate it and revert humanity to a primitive state where only the strong can survive. Yeah. Well, I never picked up on this line, but when the narrator is like falling asleep or he's like going into this like dreamlike state where, state where I think Tyler takes over the personality for a long time. He says something like a vision he he has, and it's something like, you know, I see people like here, like, uh, yeah. like drying strips of venison in the carpool lane. Like he, right. he wants a stone age. Yeah, he's like, I see people climbing the vines that wrap the Sears Tower. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is my vision of the world. <laughs> it's like to- society as we know it, to- absolutely destroyed. It's Ruins. essentially the same mentality as Kim Jong-il in Team America. <laughs> <laughs> dog eat dog will consume the world. <laughs> Mr. Ill. Mr. Uh, Ill. Hans Bricks. <laughs> oh, my God. It's disturbing. and it's, but s- it's disturbing, and it's disturbing that so many people see this movie and are like, Man, he fight, he gets me, man, Tyler Durden. He's he's so right. <laughs> that is not the point, dude. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, Sean, I get such delight in how we began this episode, Robert Paulson chanting the Robert Paulson. And first of all, just real quick realizing this time that they use the present term of the verb and say is his name is robert paulson not his name was like now that he's dead he is or something like that um that part also cracked me up this time oh my god yeah you know i mean it's it's horrifying when meatloaf is dead and like this blood just pours out of his head and then you know all these guys are like we gotta we gotta bury him bury the evidence and you know edward norton's having this crisis at the moment Mm -hmm. because he realizes spoiler time tyler durden is in his mind this kind of different version of his personality Mm -hmm. and he realizes how 
basically out of control things have become. Yes. And he starts screaming at these morons, these guys <laughs> whose central two maxims is you don't ask questions. Yeah. And he's like, this is a person. This isn't a bit of evidence. And his name is Robert Paulson. Do you understand? And this guy. I love this, <laughs> this guy. This guy just kind of nods and he's like, I understand. This <laughs> 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 goes... In Project Mayhem, <laughs> like members of Project Mayhem, in death, they have a name, and his name is Robert Paulson. <laughs> just like a bunch of fucking morons, they just start <laughs> chanting it over and over. <laughs> and Edward Norton looks around, like tells him to stop, it gets louder, and then Edward Norton just goes, shut up! <laughs> and they just don't. <laughs> it just runs out yes. in horror of what his reality has become. <laughs> Okay, bro person who thinks Tyler Durden is awesome and worth emulating. I don't know if you realize, Tyler Durden is is Edward Norton. He is the same guy. Yeah. And this is what his life has become. So yes. if you want to emulate this guy, this is where it's leading. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mindlessness. <laughs> it's like, like, no Brad Pitt is really good looking, and it would be sweet to have like abs like that mm -hmm. and you know fight people and feel all manly and shit. But like... This is an insane man. <laughs> yes, very much so. Oh my god! Yeah, I love that scene so much, Sean. In an earlier episode, you referred to it. You referred to them like bros at one point. You're like these bros start chanting, um, and this time I paid particular attention to their chanting even after Edward Norton then like runs upstairs, and like you can hear them continue to chant, and like they get louder and louder, and then they just start like screaming and revelry and like really? it sounds like they're celebrating yeah it's no like they're way. celebrating totally that he has that. died and i even think i you saw, wow. i think someone even goes all right <laughs> <laughs> like i was really paying attention and i'm pretty sure someone screamed that <laughs> it was so funny and then later later we get it as edward norton's traveling around and he goes into that like fancy like cocktail restaurant and like all the entire cooking staff is just in the kitchen like whispering his name is robert balson yeah it's like spread globally yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh man you know speaking of references to other films that's that's a moment then when we get I think a pretty clear reference to The Shining when, you know, he hears like his name is Robert Paulson and then you hear like, it's good to see you again, sir. And the camera turns and there's mm. this bartender who's cleaning a glass. It it's totally evokes the trope of like Lloyd, the bartender from yeah. The Shining, you know, who refers to Jack Nicholson as sir. And mm -hmm. <laughs> except this guy is like wearing this weird like head brace thing. <laughs> His yeah, face like, is like scarred clearly from having like yes. been... <laughs> Like absolutely massacred in a fight club. <laughs> his scar goes like from his hairline to his like his chin, and yeah, I'm pretty sure the thing he's wearing is to like ensure that he doesn't have like spinal damage on it, like just from turning his head wrong. <laughs> like so this guy, this guy has like ranked up about a hundred thousand dollars of hospital bills at least, right. and he's still looking to the like the reason behind that. You know, Mr. Durden right in front of him. He's still yeah. looking at this guy as a hero. <laughs> And then so, you know, he reveals, like, you're Mr. Durden. You're the one who gave me this. And he raises his hand. Apparently, yeah. he's been burned with lie. Um, and then, you know, Edward Norton freaks out and goes into a hospital and is piecing together uh, that he is Tyler and has been Tyler all along. Tells Marla about it. And then Tyler appears 
you know, with a shaved head now. And he's like, you talked about me. And he's all pissed mm-hmm. at him. And then he says some lines that might as well be from The Shining, too. Like, the, the references continue. And he's like, he's like, now she knows too much. And she compromises our objective, oh, which is, yeah. like, exactly what Grady says to Jack Nicholson, you know, about his wife. Yeah. Like, we need to take care of this problem because she's compromising what we're trying to build and like both of these guys are in the characters minds you know like they're both just like yeah representations of their like their dive into psychosis that knows no boundaries wow i never i never picked up on these references and these similarities but you're so right yeah and there's there's definitely like a a kubrickian influence and it's maybe tough to like Uh pinpoint specifically and it's not too overt but like yeah. Kubrick was so fascinated with the mind and insanity. Mm-hmm. And that's so much of what this movie is about. But I think that message often gets lost in, you know, so many of the other messages and some of the critiques, which many yeah. of which are really good critiques. But then, you know, it's just the method of following through on those critiques is probably not that good. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I think something for me when I watch this movie, it reminds me or it makes me think about male psychology oh, a lot. Yeah. It, it's such a male centric movie. I mean, Marla's right. the only female in it. Yeah. And Chloe. Uh, and Chloe. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and Marla, you know, she's like weird and grungy and goth at the beginning, but she turns out to be like the, the only, like in my mind, like the only redeeming thing about this movie. Yeah. The only uh, like basically source of hope in this yeah. reality. <laughs> Exactly. It's like, okay, she, she recognizes this insanity and she's strong and whatnot. Um, but for me, this movie, it, it so strongly encapsulates like male psychology. And I mean, there, even these references to like hunter gather sort of, you know, reality that Tyler Durden talks about in this like stone age mentality. It's like, that's very like kind of male strongest kind of, I don't know. It just, it has these like these themes that I feel like are, are like, central to male psychology yeah, it's like hyper masculine impulse exactly and this movie for me isn't like glorifying all of that all, all this destruction and damage you know i think some people might think it is um for me it's definitely not otherwise it's like the most hopeless movie there is right but it's not it's not doing that it's it's showing like this is what men are capable of like this yeah. is the destruction if we let this mentality continue to unfold um this is what can happen to like the guy who is the male boy in the office who then becomes like the first member of project mayhem you know like <laughs> four weeks ago that guy's delivering your mail now he's blowing up a building you know like that's like the psychosis to which like the male psychological condition can like lead to or something and it's just like that's something that we should be wary of and not think awesome. Like, <laughs> yes, you know, we we shouldn't think that's cool. We should think, oh, that could be me. Like I I am capable of devolving to that to that Stone Age degree that Tyler Durden thinks is beautiful. I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the whole like the whole element or theme of like male impulse and masculinity is just everywhere through this movie you know and the things you mentioned and the fact that like you know multiple times the biggest they like threaten someone by saying they're going to chop off his balls yeah (laughs) you know like that's like the ultimate like demasculinizing thing and (laughs) it's absolutely horrifying to think of yeah and like 
even at the beginning, um, you know, you've got this this guy Bob played by Meatloaf, and he's got these mm. the ref- bitch tits, yeah, referred to by Edward Norton as bitch tits, like. You know, it's all this like hugging and stuff, uh-huh. and like it's very feminine. You know, like yeah. even the way he talks, he's like, yeah. "They're gonna, they're gonna take away my." I can't remember what he says. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it's this I very, was a juicer. Yeah, this soft like feminine impulse is like the way to to solve issues, and then you know Tyler uh-huh. Durden comes around and he starts saying like, "We're a generation of men raised by women," and. Uh-huh. You know, there's a continual theme also of, like, having no father figure. You know, there's one mm-hmm. scene where Edward Norton and Brad Pitt are in the same bathroom and they're talking about, like, how you know, Edward Norton's like, I never knew my dad. He left. And Brad Pitt's like, you know, my dad told me, like, go to college. When I finished college, I asked him what next. He's like, I don't know. Get a job. And I, and I asked mm-hmm. him what next. He's like, I don't know. Get married. And then he says, like, maybe another woman isn't what we need. Which I took as a double meaning, too, because we is referring to, like, the psyche of this one insane man. And yeah. part of his conflict is whether or not to, like, let Marla in or not. And so I think it could be referring to her as well. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, like you mentioned, Matt, it's, like, so dangerous. But in another way, it's, like, a critique of how society at this time has kind of repressed so much of the masculine impulse yeah and it's formed it into this basically thing about which one cannot speak you know that's why the first rule of fight mm-hmm. club is you don't talk about it because it can't fit into the boundaries of this you know what they would say is like a a feminine run society that they feel like demasculinizes them or whatnot and so i think in one way the movie can be seen as a warning against either side because you know by excessive focus on like the nurturing like feminine side then there's these elements of you know the freudian id the reservoir of like impulse and desire that's not finding expression and then it can come out in really horrifying and destructive ways yeah because it's gonna eventually come up to like balance itself Mm -hmm. and i think as horrifying as this guy's journey is it is a journey of like returning to balance and <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've always felt it that way at the end yeah it's when like, he's standing it, hand in hand with marla yeah it's like okay i don't know what's going to happen next but he he's no longer divided you know he yeah so he's wow. seen how like destructive both sides are you know the total like mm-hmm. nurturing create this home with all these comfortable things uh-huh. Like, if then that runs the world, something's missing. And then this whole, like, inflicting masculine will through, like, you know, destruction and death wish is, like, horrifying in completely different ways. And that it's got to be some kind of middle ground that doesn't, yeah. you know, end in the destruction of buildings, which both of them ended in because, you know, he blew up his own apartment. Yeah, he did. Wow. I never... I never picked up on that significance of you do not talk about Fight Club. Like, you do not talk about, like, or in, in the sense of relating it in some way to, like, the male psyche. The id. Yeah. Uh, that's fascinating. I, I've read some of a book called Iron John. Have you ever heard of this book? No. It's a book about, like, male psychology and masculinity. And the beginning of the book spends a little bit of time talking about how that has shaped over 
the like since World War II. I think the book was written maybe in the 80s or 90s. So, you know, it's in some ways a little outdated, but it basically went through every decade, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I think. And um, it just kind of talked about how each of those decades had a different view of what like the ideal American man was supposed to be. And this author was saying like, that's, that alone is destructive because of how quickly it changed and how often it changed. And it was like a fast pendulum. Like, you know, think of in some ways, like the ideal American man was like breadwinner, straight laced, wore, you know, tucked in shirt, Mm -hmm. but like, totally emotionally absent yeah like like, kevin spacey and american beauty yeah exactly then like the 60s like especially getting into like the later 60s man like he was supposed to be like uh like totally emotionally present and you know these other things but like it really it was at the expense of like you know getting rid of one every every decade like tried to like wash clean the history of the previous one um which is basically the same as not doing any middle ground stuff Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting, you know, I, I would love to know, do you know what the, what is the male version of the word feminism? Like what would be the, there's only like, <laughs> there's one that's used in like a way not worth replicating because uh-huh. it's like basically making fun of feminism and okay. it's like these idiots that use this word meninism, but Menis. it's just like these people who, yeah, they're making fun just, of feminists. Yeah. And they're, yeah, they're, they're bros. They're bros. Yeah. Yeah. And pretty dumb. So they're um, members of Project Mayhem, basically. Yeah. So I, I don't know if there is like the the male version of that. Okay. Like maybe to a certain degree there there can't be. Maybe it's impossible, like just grammatically impossible for that word to exist. Sure. Um, yeah. Since like one of the core tenets of feminism is that, you know, women are seen as equals. And so it's sort of hard to like be the the sex that is seen as above and I feel like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say, but you know, maybe just philosophically that word can't exist, but whatever it is, this understanding of what it means to be a man, um, mm-hmm. really seems to be at the core of this movie. And, yeah. and like the, yeah, the, <laughs> the neurosis that it caused, like the neurosis, the, yeah. yeah, the potential psychosis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's this bonding like to the to the ultimate um you know like i said it reminds me very much of like stories that you hear in history class growing up about ancient sparta and like this just brotherly love in like the most like wartime of intense ways where it's like just like love of destruction and perfection as regarded or like in terms of like one's ability to to care only for the group um, as like a, as like a power, a structural, but like powerful. And even like, even like maybe like a sexual impulse amongst the men too. Yeah. Like I've heard that as be mentioned amidst like ancient Greece. Like, yeah, I don't know if these men like slept together, but I think they were a lot more like physical with each other than like, you know, is generally accepted in today's society or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you get the sense from, Edward Norton's character in a lot of the scenes that he does have like a sexual attraction to Tyler Durden. Like he looks at him in this way. And I was noticing a lot more this time where he's not just observing him and listening to him. He's got this like subtle smile on his face. Like he's mm. so absolutely enamored with like this guy. And I think that was present in the book. Um, Chuck Palahniuk, the writer is gay. And in the book, the narrator meets Tyler Durden on a nude beach. 
Really? And yeah, yeah, he's like naked and like making a sundial on the beach. He kind of like awakens from a dream. Interesting. Yeah. Wow, that's really significant. Yeah. And like, you know, there's that scene where they threaten to cut off that guy's balls who's you know doing the investigation and then all of these (laughs) idiots run outside and they're all happy because they just succeeded and edward norton's been feeling distant from tyler durden and he sees tyler durden like you know rub the perfect blonde hair of leto yeah and he's so bitter with jealous rage that he fights leto and absolutely massacres his face and probably the most disturbing scene I've ever seen. <laughs> I I dread that scene every time I watch really? this movie, and I, I endure it. But like the sound effects are just oh yeah, absolutely gut wrenching. It's just like every sound fades except this horrible like crunching, <laughs> squishing sound of like flesh hitting flesh, and it's just showing like blood spraying all over the place, and oh. all these men. Just watching in horror as this is happening. Yeah, that is oh. that is disturbing and yeah, crazy. Actually, in terms of that scene, what actually gets me more is when we finally see Leto afterward, and yeah. he looks nothing like Jared Leto. Actually, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, it looks nothing like him. This like huge swollen face. Yeah, he's like missing most of his teeth. Oh. <laughs> Wow. That was another critique of Roger Ebert. He's like, do these guys have like iron fists or something? They, why can't they? Like their fists would hurt with all this punching. <laughs> <laughs> I always liked when Raj would bring in like a, just a little practical detail into his critique. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, classic Raj. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe we could talk about Marla for a bit. Yeah, um, of course. Because Marla's always kind of baffled me. She's baffling. And, yeah, but she's so key. And I was wondering like, what's... What's her significance to this enterprise? Like, why is she there? And she's key because at the beginning when the narrator, Edward Norton, is kind of you know giving some exposition and setting things up, he says all of this began with a woman named Marla Singer. Like, yeah. all of this has to do with a woman named Marla Singer. Yeah. So somehow his encountering of her in these support groups when they're both showing up to basically, like, Lie. feel better <laughs> off of other people's misery. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow that started this whole thing. I mean, do you have any interpretations or thoughts as to like... Nothing nothing profound. Um, only like in terms of like what happens to the story chronologically. It seems like she begins to sort of ruffle his feathers and he can no longer find the same release kind of catharsis that he's getting from these groups because she's there and mm-hmm. he's kind of been outed as this liar or whatever and he just you know he can't he can't enter sort of his grief zone when she's there which doesn't that bring him back to um doesn't that sort of bring him back to insomnia or something yeah. like that uh-huh. so yeah. that's that's always just kind of how i i looked at it like okay so he went back to insomnia which eventually sort of led to this snap in his personality um mm-hmm. But other than that, I, I've never really had a deep, a deep thought about why she's there. I mean, cause she's even, she's absent for so much of the movie, you know, like yeah. basically throughout the whole, like f- first, I don't know, the first third, the, the first act of, of, uh, like the formation of the fight club, you know what I mean? Like she's just not there. And it's, it's not until she calls him that one day that they, that she kind of enters back into the movie. So I don't really know. Oh, and she's taking all that Xanax? Exactly, yeah. 
Yeah. Because up until then, she hadn't been in the movie for about 20 minutes, maybe even, maybe true. more like a half hour. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, man. It's, it's so fascinating because it's, it's easy to slip into watching this movie and seeing the narrator and Tyler as like separate characters. Yeah. You know, but like, I keep, no matter how many times I watch this movie, I have to remind myself, this is the same guy. This is an internal conversation that's mm-hmm. going on. Like, this is one man. And it shows how conflicted he is regarding Marla because this Tyler side of him is like with, with, with her. Like, he enjoys being with her, apparently, and yeah. having like wild sex throughout the night. Yeah. And then this conscious side takes over again and is just so mean to her like so cruel and like dismissive of her it's almost it's like he (laughs) you know he's clearly attracted to her Uh from fairly early you know he like subtly asked for her number after Mm -hmm. that first encounter but it's always like framed in this like i don't want you here kind of thing you know like he sees her as she's like a mirror to him at first and he's like get away you don't belong here Mm -hmm. and it's it so much feels like it's connected to this masculinity thing like you know Carl Jung and lots of other psychologists have you know, talked about how the psyche has both like a masculine and feminine side and that both need to find some form of like recognition both impulses in order for like the the psyche to feel like complete mm-hmm. and full and not have you know this this separation or fragmentation. Yeah. And so if she's seen as like maybe the representation of his feminine side in this like mirror Mm. kind of way, like this actual ability to love and to feel love because she's continually like trying to give him love and he just keeps pushing it away. Like he, he can't open his mind at least throughout most of the movie to that part of himself and he just wants only the Tyler side, you know, I only this like destructive masculine impulse. And then the end, you know, if they're, if he's supposed to be seen as finally imbalanced, you know, he's holding hands with her. Like he's finally able to like embrace the love that she represents. Wow. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> like I don't, I don't know. I might be stretching because it's, it's hard for me to, really rectify her i mean it really is but like i mean all that makes sense i like that idea of like looking at her as a mirror because she totally does pop up as like a mirror to him like she's doing the same thing he's doing you know she's going to these Mm -hmm. support groups even though she doesn't belong there (laughs) going to testicular cancer that always makes me funny (laughs) (laughs) makes me me laugh that she goes there yeah he's like she doesn't have testicular cancer And then I, I think her her justification is actually really funny. And she's like, I have more of a right to be there. You, I actually don't have balls. <laughs> um, I don't know if if she she helps him. Maybe not helps him, but she's she's just like she's one more way. Or like he he doesn't think his life is a fraud at all. He actually takes pride in his possessions and that's what most of that's what his life seems to be you know at the beginning like they even go through the apartment and like they they show like labels of the things that he has you know which like prices and stuff like that which i think is so funny he's literally living inside of a catalog yes exactly um (laughs) and so he just can't sleep you know he can't figure out why he finds this thing and he's doing something fraudulent that's helping him that's like 
it's almost like one more opiate that he's taking this like fraudulent going around to these different support groups. And then he's like really realizes it's a fraudulent thing when he can't do it because he sees someone else doing the same thing. Um, which I think says a lot about our, our psychology that so often we can do something that we would otherwise chastise someone else for, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, uh, okay. Like, I, I don't know how that necessarily then leads to this whole, the whole rest of the film, but she, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting because love is like in terms of themes, like love is a theme in this movie that would be like much further down the list than other movies, you know, other movies. Yeah. The theme of love is like maybe in the top three themes, but in this movie, it's like, what are the themes of this movie? Like it'd probably be like number 10 on the list. And so like, it probably isn't talked about much, but I really, really like viewing her as this, like the theme of love because you're right. Like she's in a traditional way. So giving, you know, like, yeah, she's, she's grungy and weird and you know, whatever, but like she is trying to have an actual emotional connection to this person who is psychotic. And like she says, you know, you need professional help or whatever. And she says it in a very loving way. Um, right. And then you're right at the end. It's like that mirror is kind of complete in a different way when they're holding hands and, yeah, Helena Bonham Carter is so freaking good in this movie, and yeah. I don't think she gets enough credit because most people see it, you know, as the Tyler and narrator yeah, show. Yeah. Everyone's kind of thinking of Norton and Pitt, but like she is the third part of this triangle, yeah. and she's it's easy to like kind of underplay her role, but yeah, she is the only source of like compassion <laughs> and like love yeah. for this guy in his life, and he has to learn how to like accept that when it's offered and. Helena Bonham Carter plays her with such like care and and love, I think, because like I actually when I was focusing on her a lot more this time, like I felt so much compassion for her character. Mm, yeah. And, like love for her when like towards the end she comes downstairs and Edward Norton's sitting there and she's like, Don't worry, I'll be out of here in a minute and he's like, You can stay and she's just like, Whatever. Mm-hmm. Like but she keeps coming back. Like this woman clearly has come to a place where she feels that she doesn't deserve love yeah. either. And that like she she isn't worthwhile and she deserves, you know, the the hate of a man. And she keeps coming back to that almost like she's addicted to it. Um Yeah. So I don't know, that made me feel kinda kinda sad for her and I think it's a a fascinating depiction of a different of maybe like a a feminine corollary of this guy's structure struggle you know toward the end of the millennium that we don't get quite as much insight to you're but right. it's still there yeah you're right if if the struggle in men uh, as depicted in this movie is somewhere between kind of sheltered you know um product of consumerism versus caveman um then I, kind of the two sides of the coin for the woman for uh, Marla as depicted in this movie might be something somewhere between like, or, you know, I, I don't know, kind of the, that's the conflict for men, like caveman versus sheltered consumerist product. And the woman is like caregiver versus one taken advantage of or something like that. So like um, kind of this, this extreme in, in both ways, which you're right, isn't really gone into yeah. too much depth, but it is amazing how, given that the character of Marla isn't like we don't go like deep into her life. Um, her character is like so well-rounded in the conflicts that we see in her. 
Um, which mm-hmm. you're right. It's, it's so hard to, it's hard to watch sometimes. I mean, aside from the whole struggle aspect of it, but because I so often forget that Edward Norton is Tyler Durden, you know? So right. when he's like, when, when she's like that scene you mentioned, okay, I'll get out of here. It's like, oh, this is the same guy who was nice to her last night, <laughs> you yeah, know, like, right. And they were having a connection of some kind, but in the morning he's just this fucking asshole. Right. I think she, she shows how like essential, how essential women are, which mm-hmm. may sound super banal and like dumb to say, but you know, what I mean is that in the worldview that Tyler starts espousing that all these guys follow, it's essentially like, we don't need women. We need mm-hmm. to reconnect to our masculinity, to our male impulse. And, you know, it shows how absolutely destructive <laughs> it is when you, know, you just like bar <laughs> out the feminine yeah. <laughs> women from reality and just how like dumb guys are yeah, and their yes. like tribe mentality, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so significant that like for the... F- like the really the only time I feel like there's a true connection between Edward Norton and um, Marla, which just goes to show uh, like how well done I think this movie is. Like there's always tension, except the only time that it really feels like a true unadulterated connection is at the very end, like right when mm-hmm. Tyler has died. And right, who knows what Edward Norton's characters or his personality is like now? But like that that Tyler Durden esque men you know master of the universe no women necessary kind of boys club thing is like is it's gone faded away completely <laughs> shot through the head <laughs> yeah <laughs> that that part also made me laugh a lot like yeah it could be really dark because he's literally shot himself like through the neck <laughs> but like <laughs> you know, he's up in this dark tower everything's dark in this it's movie, very david fincher he he knows how to work with dark and yeah, seriously. There's <laughs> it's such a, not an ounce of sunlight in this no, whole film. Right. Every single scene outside and inside is just like dark. Wow. He he has a very <laughs> low view of humanity. <laughs> yeah. But like all these people start coming in and you know seeing Tyler the narrator sitting there. <laughs> just Sir? Like, oh my god. <laughs> like you look awful. And he's like ah. I love that. And this guy's like, no, sir, you need medical assistance. (laughs) You look really terrible. (laughs) He literally just had a bullet go through like his face. I know. I was laughing a lot at that that scene this time around. I've never laughed at that scene. I've always been perplexed, but I was... Yeah, or like everything leading up to that when he's just like running wildly through the city Mm -hmm. in like a robe and underwear and like these goofy ass shoes. Yeah. <laughs> just frantically moving around. <laughs> one thing on this, uh, one thing I noticed this time was the city that they're uh-huh. in is never given a no, name. No, I've always wondered what it like. It's it's just a city. Yeah, they mention other Which cities. They like they reference other yeah. cities, but because he's like flying around city. Yeah, city. exactly. But I think that's such a brilliant move mm-hmm. because. You know, it's saying this is just the city. Yeah. It's not like this is happening in New York. This isn't happening in L.A. It's just this is the city exactly. and what it's doing to people. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. It's like it, it has this anonymity that's able to be like kind of a, a prototype or sort of an archetype of like an American city. It's financial downtown and whatnot. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. In the, in the end, I don't think I quite agree with Roger Ebert, mm-hmm. who saw this movie as... I think more or less espousing a nihilistic mentality. I do agree that some people 
in, a lot of people interpret it that yeah. way and see it as kind of glorifying nihilism. Mm-hmm. But I think really it's a huge critique on nihilism and is essentially saying that if we don't experience or cultivate balance in our own psyches, then we are basically going to destroy the world. Yeah, exactly. It's totally not at the surface level like that, that interpretation, but that's what I feel the movie's saying. At least I hope it is. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, a, it's very much a warning, like warning against like the tribe mentality uh-huh. and blindly following, which project mayhem is hilariously explicit in its yeah. blind following ethos yes. because the first two rules are you don't ask questions. Exactly. Blindly accept everything that's being told to you by this insane man. <laughs> <laughs> Who makes soap out of human fat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, th- I thought we were dwindling here. Maybe we're still on the last leg, but we do have to talk about that for a minute. Oh, my God. So I'm always disturbed. <laughs> You mean when when they're stealing the human fat and it like yeah. spills out all yes. over Tyler? And Tyler Durden's like trying to catch it. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, like all goopy and like red. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's like, you know, on a first viewing, you see the human fat and it becoming soap and being sold to these places. And it's just like, oh, that's disgusting. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the limit of it. But this is something that was directly from the book and... You know, if you actually th- think about it for a minute, I think it says something fascinating. Um, yeah. Like Tyler says the line, like we're selling their own like fat asses back to themselves. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to these rich people. And so I was thinking it's like that, that fat and soap is itself this huge critique of capitalism in mm-hmm. that the reason all this fat exists in the first place is because of shit like mcdonald's yeah and Burger exactly King and starbucks and krispy Kreme, basically mm-hmm. <laughs> things that profit off of people's lack of health yeah. because they get people addicted to shit like sugar mm-hmm. and salt and they just yeah. keep coming back feeding more money and becoming fatter but then with the ethos of you know appearances and having to look a particular way which is all through this movie you know they even like <laughs> yeah. point to these underwear models mm-hmm. like is that what a man looks like well then these people of the society feel that they can't be fat because that makes them ugly and that makes them hideous. So they pay these other people to suck the fat right out of them. And so the fat then becomes profitable. And then you get these Tyler Durden people who fashion it back and like repurpose it into soap, which he calls the yardstick of civilization. (laughs) (laughs) Then that becomes profitable. So it's like all these really dehumanizing things become like you know if we see money as like the the basis of the moral system of behavior of this kind of twisted reality then these are all like good things yeah but clearly they're not no exactly (laughs) it's like it's it's all being like it it, like somehow even down to the gross disgusting nitty-gritty everything is somehow being like beautified and sold just like its form is just changed to look good and then it's being sold. And mm-hmm. I love that scene when Tyler's selling soap to that woman in the department store. Have you ever noticed that like his pants are like very far down his body? No. <laughs> yeah. They're like very far down his body. Like he's showing a significant portion of his abs, even like upper leg. <laughs> 
I don't, I don't know why, why he's like that. It's just like ultra cool or just like, I don't care or something. I don't know, but it's like, yeah. it's also she- sexual in a certain way, uh-huh. <laughs> it's, but it's just like really hilarious. It like adds to the irony somehow that like he's both fashionable, but, but totally outside the, the norm because he's a psycho, you know? Um, and the, like these soaps that look so good and just like, I've, I've seen them at like department stores or like even Whole Foods. They'll have like these like organic soaps that are like packaged yeah. with like a beautiful, like, you know, hemp ribbon around them and they look yeah. you know, a little like recycled cardboard label and they look amazing. And then to think that those are made from human fat is just like <laughs> so funny. <laughs> yeah. So, so funny. And the fact that like, yeah, he does it in this very aesthetically pleasing, like societally acceptable yeah. way. And yet the very thought is so inherently like primitive and disturbing of like humans, human sacrifice. Yeah. 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 He even connects it to the human sacrifice when he's talking about like the, how the fat would wash into the river. Yeah. And so it's all <laughs> just like primal urges that, you know, are forced to adapt to this, like, the civilization, you know, we've mentioned Freud a few times and one of his most famous books is Civilization and its Discontents. Mm-hmm. And kind of the, the premise or the thesis of that book is essentially that civilization has historically been a restructuring of primitive desire in uh, human beings, like unconscious desires, which, you know, he calls the id. And then we internalize the rules of our society and our civilization in what he calls the super ego. And then the ego is basically the result of the conflict between those and the healthy psyche, if Freud could possibly imagine such a thing, was basically one that could find some sort of like balance or recognition between the two. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, part of the critique of this film is that society has gotten to a place where at least in males the id is finding absolutely no expression Mm. and that is as freud suggested in civilization and its discontents potentially very destructive yeah because they're not going to go away they're just going to get bottled up until they come out yeah which they really do in this movie (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like to see this movie as a warning. Um, yeah. and I like to tie themes of this movie back to our gladiator episode when we talked about kind of our opinion of bros and how it's the idea of a bro is a destructive being, uh, a destructive <laughs> manifestation of humanity <laughs> and only destructive force. Yeah. A very, very destructive force. Um, ignorant in too many ways and destructive toward uh individuation toward enlightenment toward recognition of the self exactly uh destructive toward worst they're the worst destructive toward all things beautiful toward women i i really think that uh again like some of my former students and whatnot or just anyone anyone who happens to be listening if if you're a male and you consider yourself a bro um and you believe your friends to be bros like you, um, that's, that's bad. Like ontologically, that's, that's bad. You should not be proud of this. You should, you should have the desire to make a change. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not good. Yeah. It's you horrible. are one of these space monkeys. Yeah, exactly. Project Mayhem. <laughs> yeah. No, no kidding. That's a, that's not a good thing. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> well, this one, uh, ends 
an explosion yeah, film. Absolutely. And say we've kind of brought this to explosion, maybe. I, yeah. To the, Wouldn't you say? I think so. To the to the end of the movie. Yeah. I think the only scene that I was hoping to get to that we didn't get to is the scene with Lou. Oh, I that. <laughs> <laughs> just laughing at Lou. <laughs> Partly laughing at Lou, but I was also just like fascinated with that scene this time. Uh-huh. It's like, in case you need a reminder, listener, it's when, you know, they're downstairs having their fight club, Brad Pitt's talking, and then the guy comes downstairs who's who owns the tavern. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm fucking Lou yeah. because they're in Lou's tavern. And he's like this big Italian guy yeah. in like a suit, just like straight mafioso yeah, man. And then he just like beats the living crap out of Tyler. Like uh-huh. you can tell this guy has basically made his livelihood on threatening people. Yeah. And, you know, he's got his crony with his gun. Big guy. And stuff. Yeah, big guy. Mm-hmm. And Tyler just sits there and takes it. He doesn't even fight back. Yeah. And he's just laughing mm-hmm. the whole time. So like, what does this scene mean? This scene was not in the book. I'm almost certain. Oh, like, why, why did they add that? And a couple interpretations that I came up with is, you know, we've been talking about this, this primal aggression and how... It needs, you know, it needs to match to civilization. Well, this is like a form of a man who, like, has built his livelihood on using this primal aggression Mm -hmm. in a way to, like, you know, reach financial success in a way that's still societally acceptable, but also, (laughs) like, outside the fringes, but operating in a realm of, like, fear and unspokenness. Yeah. And he's he's also, like, this older generation, right? Yes. you know, our, our parents' classic movies were like Godfather, the Godfather yeah. and stuff, like this mafia man. And Tyler Durden's like the new generation's outside man. And he bests this guy because he has literally no limits. And this guy shows in the end that he does have a limit. And it's when a bloody man is spraying his own blood <laughs> all over his face while grasping his collars and yeah. screaming yeah. over and over. And like that is this guy's limit he's still like bound by some kind type of code yeah. and this like new rebel criminal guy has absolutely no boundaries which you know it's kind of like the joker yeah horrifying yeah exactly kind of that agent of chaos sort of even as like outside the the norm or outside the bounds of society as something like organized crime might be it's still not chaotic uh but yeah. but sort of like chaos to the point of ripping down the boundaries of society because like like you said like this lou the old-fashioned kind of mafioso kind of guy like he's he's outside the bounds of appropriate but still within society but tyler durden seeks Mm -hmm. to destroy society yeah so man any final thoughts (laughs) i i can't wait to watch it again (laughs) Yeah, yeah this not to be cliche but this truly is one of the few movies that I get something new out of every time. Yeah, same here. It's a, it, it's a lot of fun. It's really good. Yeah. Um, There's a final image I'd mentioned this time because it was something I'd never noticed before and just this like amazing filmic technique. There's, there's a scene where like, it's just kind of the camera's slowly moving in to Tyler in this weird kind of dreamlike basement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's like, you're not the car you drive. You're yeah. Not, whatever. You're not your fucking khakis. Yeah. And when it transitions, yeah, the camera starts shaking chaotically. When it transitions to that scene, it looks like Tyler is engulfed in flames. And huh. like I thought my mind was playing tricks with me. I was like, what the hell is that? And 
the way Fincher did it was he did this slow fade between a building being destroyed, like blowing up, huh. and it fades right into that scene. And the last remaining image from the fade is the the flames of the building, and it looks like they're literally like coming out of Tyler's body. Oh, really? I didn't catch was, that. Yeah, I'd never seen it before, and it's like little details like that that you know Fincher did on purpose yeah. that just make this movie so worth watching like multiple times yeah. because that's amazing. That's so well done. Oh my god, there's so much in this movie, so detailed, and it is great. Yeah. You can focus on the details. You can't do that with all movies, but this one you really can. Yeah, yeah, it's. It's very worth watching very closely while <laughs> allowing your mind to do its very best to interpret what the heck it means. Yes, absolutely. Just as long as that interpretation is not that these guys are awesome and I want to live a life like this. Yes, if that's your interpretation. That is wrong. That is wrong, yes. <laughs> that, we're going to pull a French one on you and say that is bad and wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks for coming with us on this journey, listener, as yeah. always. Yeah. Unlike Fight Club, we encourage you to talk about general snobbery. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> we encourage you to ask questions, too. Yeah, we do. We you know, we very much enjoyed responding to those questions. Absolutely. And we enjoy responding to your questions. So, thank you, as always, for being a listener. Um, thank you um, to the NSA for listening. And um, mm-hmm. to, we hope that you have a good day. And that's... It's that, and, and there's, I don't know, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> if you have any follow up thoughts on Fight Club, hit us up on the Twitter mm-hmm. at General Snobbery or uh, the Instagram yeah. if that's possible. Um, yeah. Also at General Snobbery. And uh, if you have any ideas for new movies that you'd like us to snob about, yeah. please let us know. That would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. We'd love to, we'd love to do that. All right. Three cheers to uh, a second year of snobbery yes. now unfolding. Now underway. Now underway. Now underway. <laughs> so. His name is. His name Jim is Robert Paulson. 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 Yeah. <laughs> his name is Robert Paulson. Paulson. Yeah. His name is Paulson. Meatloaf. <laughs> All righty, listener. Go see Paradise by the Dashboard Lights. And um, that's about. And uh, bye. Goodbye. <laughs>